and pray with me, please. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle in us, Lord, the fire of your love. Your word says that when you send forth your spirit, you will recreate the face of the earth. Lord, we need you now to come and speak to us. We want to leave different than when we came in. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ryan's taken uh, a shine to a particular uh, Catholic bishop that I had uh, been introduced to by my sister-in-law from Dallas. She's Catholic. She married a Catholic man, and they and she went through their catechism and joined the Catholic Church. She's formerly a good Methodist, and now she's a really good Catholic. And she and many people uh, in our our Catholic uh, cousins have uh, latched on to and begun to listen to and study a particular bishop named Robert Barron. He's very good. I, uh, Ryan's right. I commend him highly to you. He's got, um, he's intellectual, he's whimsical. He'd make a really good Anglican, um, but he's a Catholic priest and a bishop. So uh, Robert Barron is uh, a person that I'm borrowing from liberally, at least to get the juices flowing today in this kind of short reflection. One of the things Barron points out in his sermon on this exact a gospel, this story of Martha and Mary that we all know. Um, we have actually a family in our church, and one daughter is named Mary, and the other daughter is named Martha. Go figure. Um, they're a pretty well-known sisters in the New Testament. They're the sisters of Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is uh, one of those people the Bible describes or Scripture describes as one of Jesus's good friends, not one of his 12 disciples, but certainly probably one of the 72 that was always within earshot of Jesus like a fraternity brother or a sorority sister. Anyway, um, Lazarus is the one. We all know that story. Jesus waits a few days and then goes, and finally um, he, he weeps. It's the shortest verse in Scripture at Lazarus's tomb. That's a whole other sermon that I love to preach about. He doesn't weep um, because he misses Lazarus or because Lazarus is dead or because he's helpless. Um, Jesus actually weeps, I believe, at the tomb because his creation, everything that he made perfectly, is, is tainted. It's broken, it's perverted, and the, and the biggest indicator of all that is death. And so I think Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus as a sidebar and, and weeps because he's so upset that death and sin have messed up his beautiful creation. That's an oversimplification. But anyway, Martha and Mary, sisters of Lazarus, um, this is the story we get when Jesus comes back for a visit. And apparently uh, Martha, the more industrious one, um, is running around trying to get the house ready for some event, maybe, some kind of hospitality. It's interesting in the story of Abraham and, J and Sarah that we heard read today, we also get another story of hospitality. You know, Sarah kind of stays in the tent while Abraham runs around and makes all of these arrangements, these hospitable arrangements, to serve the Lord. The, the, the scripture says the Lord came to Abraham in the form of three persons. We can't miss that. And so then Abraham, as soon as he encounters the Lord, the first thing he does is begin to create this area of hospitality. So now jump to the gospel. There's Jesus. He's come to visit some friends. And one of the sisters, it seems, is hurrying around trying to make everything all right. Um, and the other sister seems to be just content by sitting at Jesus' feet. And we get that line at the end where Jesus looks at the industrious sister, the hardworking sister, the one who's trying to serve sister. And he says, Martha, Martha... You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Ryan's been quoting this all week, unum necessarium in the Latin. 
the one necessary thing. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so Barron points out, and I would agree, that oftentimes I think this gets preached to us in the form of, well, you've got the person who wants to serve the church, and you've got the person who's content to be a contemplative. They want to be on the prayer team, or they want, to, uh, they want to always be here when the doors open, but don't ask them to be on the hammerheads. Don't ask them to show up for a fellowship gathering. Don't ask them to do something for a funeral. Um, they're content to just be praying while other people are doing the work. So it becomes this uh, battle between which is more important. Should we be working for the Lord, or should we be praying to the Lord? The answer, of course, we know is both. It's both. But what about this idea of the one necessary thing? What, what does Jesus mean? I mean, could he actually be saying, hey, everybody, the only thing that's necessary is for you literally to sit and be with me at my feet every day. I mean, some of us would scratch our heads, lawyers, doctors, and others, and go, well, how's anything going to get done? If we're all just sitting around in this building in these boxes, praying and worshiping and waiting, and um, how's the, what's going to happen to the rest of the world, to the children? And everything else? Is that what Jesus is really saying? Or is he actually trying to strike a healthy balance? Um, I think, and Bishop Barron would agree here, that he's essentially saying Mary's priorities today, as I'm here present with you, are in the right order. He's not saying Mary's perfect and Martha's fallible. He's not saying I pick Mary over Martha. I think he's simply making a comment about the one thing that is necessary. So that begs my first question to us. Where, where is God in terms of the priority of our life? Is he primary? From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep? I mean, my friend Ryan, he's pretty close there. He's very faithful in his daily office and his prayers. He's very faithful in his weekly attendance at worship and in quiet time in this church. I would say my friend Ryan, as an example, has got God as close to being his first priority as he can. But he's also married and has a baby and one on the way. But he's got God in the first priority. Some of us, I think, we have God in the second priority. We're good at thanking him when things are going well. Oh, I'm so blessed. And we're also good at calling on him when things go bad. Lord, help me. But in the day-to-day, in the morning-to-evening struggles in our lives, as we're being pulled to and fro, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. There are at least, if I could give you all a pad of paper right now and say, write down the 10 things that is troubling you or you're anxious about today. I can peel off five in my life real quick. My oldest son, who's an addict, I'm I'm worried about him. My middle son, who's getting ready to um, foster a child that's 11 years old, I'm very worried about him. My daughter, who went back to, I mean, I can give you a quick list of things that are anxious, that cause me anxiety or trouble. We all have them. Mary has them in this story. She's just choosing, with Christ present, to put him first. To put him first. Here's a quote this week that I was going to work into my sermon on Sunday, but it worked out better in this little reflection. The revelation of our growth in grace is the way at which we look upon our obedience to God. Let me, let me unpack that just a second. What the writer is saying is, the more we understand that everything is a gift, that everything comes, according to Kelly Capic, from God through us to others, the more we understand that equation, 
the more we are filled with gratitude. We're receiving God's grace for everything from our breath to gravity to the heat to the sun. The more we're in touch with, the more we're aware of the presence of God, the more we practice the presence of God in our lives, the more we could say we're aware of just how graceful and good God is. And what happens is it translates into obedience. So you find those saints in the church that are faithful year after year. Um, This writer would say, well, just look under the covers. Ask them a few questions about their life. Ask them how much they think they've done and how much they think has been given to them by God. And what you'll find is someone who's very aware, first of all, that they're not in control of much and that everything they have, like Scripture says, comes from God comes from God. Our growth in grace is the way we can judge our obedience. So when we're obedient to the Lord, primarily, that's going to put us in the right place to keep him as our first priority. Um, Sometimes it takes sheer effort. It does. And sometimes it comes effortlessly. There are times when you can be in the God groove and it seems like every song you hear, every person you meet, everything you're asked to do all kind of fits into God's purpose in your life and you couldn't be more happy to be alive. And then there are those trying times where it seems like you just can't get out of your own way and you're waiting for the third shoe to drop so that you can finally get through this very tough place in your life. God's being first in our lives won't negate those hard times from coming. They'll just put them in the proper order the proper order, that unum necessarium, that one thing that Mary chose. So that's where I want to end. I I mentioned it from the pulpit a few weeks ago. I'd I'd love us, um, in terms of the way we view God in our lives, to move from thinking of the good we do and the bad we do with the Lord. We keep a ledger, even though I believe he doesn't keep a ledger. We shift our thinking from, oh, I bet he's not real happy with me about that, or I bet he's really pleased that I you know, called one of the shut-ins in our church, to this. How often are we aware of God, and how often do we catch ourselves being unaware? Where are those places in our lives where we are walking around unaware of the blessings of God? We're, We're essentially doing it on our own. We're getting by under our own strength. On our African mission trip, uh, Brett Kuchera, who was with me, um, said if he ever writes a book since coming to Christ, which has been kind of a, a redo for him in later life, he's kind of his faith has been re- re- renewed or revigorated, uh, the title of his book would be, I Don't Have It From Here. In other words, how many times have you heard that expression? I think about boating often. You know, you get somebody there having trouble learning how to sail or, or whatever, or riding a bike, and they finally look at you and go, okay, I got it from here. I know how to do it. Um, that's not the way we live the Christian life. We, we don't have it from here. And if we don't have God primarily in the right spot, then everything else is going to constantly seem like it's competing for our attention. But we put him first, like Mary does in this gospel. He promises by the power of his spirit, he will line the rest of those things up for us. So I am trying to keep God first and foremost in my life. And when I find that happening, what I notice is my anxiety about my oldest son, who's an addict, or my middle son, who may be getting in over his head with this new family, or any of the other number of things that compete is, Lord, everything on heaven and earth is yours. We adore you as being in control of everything, Scripture tells us. And I'm going to place them faithfully in your hands, and I'm going to choose to put you first in my life. Amen. Amen.